Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 200 and it's with Brett Bartholomew. Now I'm sure everyone listening has heard of Brett and knows his work, but if you don't, if you've been living in a cave somewhere and you're not quite sure, Brett is a keynote speaker, performance coach and consultant, best-selling author and founder of Art of Coaching. His experience includes working with members of Fortune 500 companies, the US Special Forces and sporting organisations and professional athletes. Brett is also a self-published best-selling author of Conscious Coaching, the art and science of building buying. Taken together, Brett has coached a diverse range of athletes from across 23 sports worldwide at levels ranging from youth athletes to Olympians. He supported numerous Super Bowl and World Series champions, along with several uh, professional fighters. He is currently conducting his doctoral research focused on the role of power dynamics, persuasion and optimising change management within organisations at the University of Central uh, Lancashire. So what a guest we have got for this week's episode. I knew that when we were planning episode 200, it had to be in line, if not better, than episode 100. And episode 100 was great, went down an absolute storm, some great feedback with Tom Allen and Matt Taberner. And I feel like this one is on the same level. So huge thank you to Brett for coming on the podcast. What I would say is if you haven't read Brett's book, Go and read it. I literally finished it a few days before recording the podcast and took absolutely loads from it. So that is some of the areas that we tap into in the podcast in terms of working with different archetypes. We also touch on the importance of language and communication, but we break it down. Brett does an amazing job at breaking it down into what that actually means and what we need to do as practitioners to really get into conversations and be effective with our communication as well. Now, just before we dive into the episode, I just want to give a quick heads up to a couple of events that we've got coming up. So on Wednesday, the 24th of August, we are at Rehab for Performance in Liverpool, and we've got two brilliant speakers at that event. So we've got Matt Taberner, performance coach Matt Taberner. He's going to be doing a Q&A for us alongside John McEwen, who is the head of Academy Sports Science at Everton. So there are tickets still available for that one. So head over to the shop at footballfitfed.com. And then we've also got another event. If, if there's anyone listening that is down south, we have got an event at MK Dons at Stadium MK on Thursday, the 25th of August. I'm delighted to say we've got performance director at MK Dons, Simon Crampton. We've also got head strength conditioning coach at MK Dons, Tom Bromley, and also assistant SNC coach at MK Dons, Akash. They are all going to be presenting for us at that event. And again, tickets are still available for that as well. So go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop tab and get yourself some tickets for either one or both of those events. Now, I'm very excited by this podcast, you can probably tell in the tone of my voice, I'm really excited to release it and get feedback on it because I absolutely loved recording this with Brett. So we will dive into it, but just before we do, a huge thank you to our sponsors, to Rezzle. Let's get into it now. Episode 200 with Brett Bartholomew. 
Rezel is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Rezel, Rezel. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezel Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezel, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to a very special episode of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Not only because this is episode 200, but also I'm joined by author of Conscious Coaching, keynote speaker and coach Brett Bartholomew. Brett, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you, Ben, and congrats on 200. You know, we have a podcast of our own and I know how hard that is. People don't understand the, the amount of consistency, work, preparation so 200 podcasts is is amazing i think they say what, what was it the other day they were sharing a quote where they were saying that there was over like 10 million podcasts in the world it's got to be way above that now but fewer than like what was it more than 90 percent of them don't even have 10 episodes yeah because people yeah. just kind of quit and then they just go into a graveyard yeah it's crazy isn't it there is a lot out there but some quality podcasts as well including your own which i've taken absolutely loads from and I want to dive into not only the podcast and the work you're doing, the book, your book you've wrote as well, and all the work that you're doing currently as well. Anyone that hasn't heard of the work you're doing, Brett, which I'm sure is a very, very small percentage of the listeners right now, can you give a little bit of a backstory on yourself? Yeah. How far back do you want me to go? Like what got me into strength and conditioning in general? Or Let's uh, do it. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Well, the Reader's Digest version, because as you know, it's it's, it's a good chunk of the book. Reader's Digest version is, you know, when I was about 13, 14 years old, you know, I'd always been like a very competitive athlete. Like my family, we were very passionate about a lot of sports. And, you know, that was something that I did throughout my entire childhood. And, you know, I'd gotten to a point where uh, when I was about 15, my parents had gotten a divorce. My mom had moved and I was experiencing somewhere I was going to a new school and long story short, a bunch of people in that school had gotten into some pretty hardcore drugs. So here I was teenager, no real outlet to deal with some of the things I was going through. Parents were constantly fighting. They're great now. And ironically, after 18 years of being divorced, got back together. Uh, but this was a pretty tumultuous time. And then my entire social circle, you know, getting into drugs like heroin and, and cocaine, which was you know, I know nobody knows me, but these aren't exactly things that, that I'm into. And so what I turned to was training in sport, like obsessively to really deal with what was a lot of anger and anxiety and, and even depression, you know, just a lot of things in my life change. And, you know, this was during a time where you didn't really have access to the resources that you have now. I mean, I'm not old, I'm 36, but you know, my main information came from men's health and muscle and fitness. When you're a teenager, that's what you know about, you know, you don't know about different blogs. You don't know about industry experts or anything like that. And so at the time, this was when like low fat and low carb were really popular. So like any good absolutist, I did both. So you can imagine this 15 year old training three times a day for his sport, eating low fat and low carb, essentially being just undernourished. And one day I had passed out and found myself in a doctor's office where he essentially said, listen, uh, your heart's at risk. My resting heart rate has, has got as low as uh, 34 beats per minute. 
and your kidney and liver enzymes are off. And if you continue down this path, your body's going to shut down and, and you're essentially going to die. I mean, I had gotten from, I'd have to do the conversion. So I apologize for the international audience. Of course, <laughs> typical American idi idiocy, but I was about 135 pounds at the time um, and, and got down as low as, you know, about 90. And so I was eventually put in an inpatient eating disorder hospital and this place was just awful. It's it's what my business now is is predicated or is really meant to solve because you are around all these doctors and nurses and, and specialists, but they treated you like a symptom. Every day you woke up, your blood was drawn at about 5 a.m. Whether you could shower or not, and I couldn't shower for the first two weeks, uh, was predicated on your body mass index of all things and your health status, which we know BMI is just a load of crap. And they were scared the initial shock of hot or cold would send me into cardiac arrest. So you'd get weighed. You would spend uh, nine tenths of your day in this day room, which was a small room surrounded by plexiglass with about 15 other people, variety of ages. One was a junior Olympic wrestler who had developed an exercise disorder because his dad had beat him after missing weight for a national tournament. There was a 60-year-old woman whose husband had left her. There's people in there of all walks of life that, you know, just like anybody, whether it's an alcoholic or somebody that's got any issue, there's underlying issues. But, you know, you're made to go to these groups where all they talked about was food and exercise. And, you know, I would tell them, they'd say, why are you in here? And I'd say, you know, I'm angry and I, I'm dealing with a lot of changes and training is something that gives me respite. And they'd say, no, you're just in denial. And what they do is try to pump you filled with antidepressants and all these other things until you became, uh, until you fell in line a little bit more. So I go into the book far deeper, but I spent a year of my life in that hospital. And eventually I met a therapist because you'd have to meet with uh, psychologists and therapists weekly who, you know, kind of convinced my parents, you know, this isn't really the place for him. You know, this issue isn't food. You know, this is this. And, and he's got to find different outlets. And I remember shortly before I left, I was able to leave the hospital for a field trip because if you gained a certain amount of weight, you could you could do that. Otherwise, Ben you're not able to walk because they're really nervous about non-exercise thermogenesis. So if you stand or fidget, you're, you're given a warning. If you did it again, uh, you were given a second warning. You do it a third time. You're either fed intravenously or given a meal replacement. You have no choice. I mean, it's the most menial thing ever. If you had mashed potatoes and gravy, they make you literally lick or take your finger and every calorie has to be accounted for. I mean, an awful, awful play. And it's well-known I don't know how it is internationally, but in the States, these are awful places. Um, but anyway, I had gotten two books and I had to steal them. One was complete conditioning for football. And another one was a nutrition book. And I hid them in the book jackets of one was hidden in a book about a book jacket about golf. And another one was like motivational, whatever, because when you took them to the hospital, they'd rifle through all your stuff. And so you, I learned everything I could about proper training, proper nutrition, so that when I got out of that hospital, I'd never have to go back. And I remember I gained, you know, about 50 pounds. Again, apologies for the conversion um, when I had left. And that set me forth on a life where I was like dedicated. I want to learn as much about human psychology, proper strength training, proper nutrition, how to rebuild the body, because I had to rebuild mine a massive amount to keep from essentially going into cardiac arrest or dying. And then I never wanted anybody to feel like I felt when I became a coach uh, where you know, I was treated like a symptom instead of somebody that needed to be helped. So that gave way to a career after I got my 
degree at Kansas State and then a master's degree in motor learning, specifically attentional focus from Southern Illinois. Now I'm working on my doctorate um, and the focus is on power dynamics. But that gave way to a career both in the collegiate setting in America, uh, working with uh, over 13 different sports and uh, in the private sector, where collectively now I've worked with 23 sports worldwide across, you know, 30 some odd countries and then uh, wrote Conscious Coaching in 2017 and decided to start a leadership development based company that could help those in the performance world, as well as leaders from any walk of life, learn how to deal with better power, power dynamics psychology, behavior change, communication. So it's a lot, man. But it all stemmed from that inciting incident as a kid, nearly losing my life and really poor communication in that medical realm. And that's our mission now, right? To teach people, no matter what you know about your subject knowledge, unless you know about people, you are nowhere near a finished product because that's what any kind of coaching and leadership is about. Yeah, 100%. We, when we speak about someone's why and why they do what they do like there can't be much more of a stronger reasoning behind you wanting to work with people and improve people's lives now and it and i think it's fascinating now that it's gone out of sport as well am i right in saying that it's not just it's not just athletes now as well yeah i mean just like um you know you see members of the military or different you know doctors that have done their core profession for a while and then cross over you know, I, I was a strength and conditioning coach for 15 years, worked predominantly with professional athletes outside of the collegiate side, a lot of special forces. That's actually how my wife and I met when we were working with military. Um, but, you know, we just learned that, you know, getting people stronger and more fit is, is one way to make them better and one way to make them adapt. But it all started when a lot of strength coaches, when I went out on my own, started saying, hey, how can I kind of build my own brand without just looking like a sellout without looking like somebody that's just in it for themselves. How, how can I get in a better financial position? Because you and I both know there's tons of people that go and they think that working in high level collegiate sport or with a pro club is like the end all. But here's the thing, how many happily married, retired, healthy, financially healthy and otherwise healthy strength coaches do you know, mm -hmm. you know? And so inevitably a friend of mine who had worked in sport, like, you know, 15 some odd years pro sport, just said, you know, I know I want to give more. I love my job, but I want to give more. And so people started coming to us for like, hey, how do I start a speaking career? I'm burnt out. How do I do stuff that no other governing body was helping them with? And so we started creating resources and outputs, the things that I wish I had, whether it was learning how to deal with difficult personalities that I knew you just had to figure out how to get them to, and I know we'll talk about that, archetypes and what have you. Um, whether that was learning how to get your finances in order, literally we're like, we're going to start a career that is for coaches that want to, because think about it. You have musicians like Jay-Z, right? They're rappers. Then they go own a record label. Now they're business owners that help other, other musicians get out of certain situations. And you, you we're supposed to evolve, but you don't see that in the performance realm. You, you don't see, like you see the dentist who used to be a dent dental hygienist, then a full-on dentist, then owned his own business, then did this. So you could look at it this way within the performance realm, we, we, we exist to help coaches evolve and scale the impact that they can give. So hopefully that contextualizes things because ain't nobody else doing it. I'm not saying we're perfect at it, but you can't go to these other organizations and get that education. So yeah. we put our life savings into it and that's what we're doing now. No, oh, brilliant. I wanted to pick out a couple of the archetypes because anyone that's not read the book, I do encourage it because you go into detail on all these different archetypes. And I'm sure I've done the same as everyone else who reads it, who's coached anyone. 
you read the archetype and you relate it straight away to a player that you've worked with and you have that player in your mind. I wanted to pick out a couple, and it's funny you talked about the military because the first one I wanted to pick out was a leader, which I'm sure everyone will straight away jump to either a professional player or someone they've worked with. But in the book, you talk about the positives of working with the player and also the weaknesses and how we have to adapt our approach with that with that person as well. Can you go into a bit of detail on that around working with this leader? Yeah. So let's just talk about what an archetype is. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know, an archetype is nothing more than a typical example of a certain person or thing. Anybody that's read a book understands the archetype of a hero or a villain. Anybody that's been on social media understands the archetype of person that just post pictures of their food or wants to talk about politics. We are all archetypes. And the biggest thing that I want people to understand, because there is about 1% of people that read the book that, you know, tried to stir up and make a big deal of it so much that we made a podcast explaining it. Archetypes are not static. So in the book, if we say that somebody presents a soldier or a leader type archetype, that does not mean in all situations in their life, right? Certain people are going to have archetypical characteristics in one context and different characteristics in another context. But you do have to have a semblance of pattern recognition when working with people, just like you do in performance in sport. So the goal is to give descriptors, as Ben alluded to, to help people understand, oh, all right, there might be something I can latch onto here. Because when you're trying to figure somebody out, you've got to gather little bits of information, and then you've got to see them over time. So, you know, the, the soul, you, you talked about the leader archetype in particular, am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll just be very brief. In the book, we give a way of like, all right, you can get an idea. A leader is somebody that, you know, they, they, they want to bring the best out of others. They're going to shoulder the load. They're going to do whatever they can to give and help other people just really be their best selves, right? Uh, common motivations are, are endless, but let's say just if we chose three, there's, you know, this idea that they want to bond with others, achieve team goals, a sense of unity, a sense of purpose, right? There's something bigger there. It's not just them. Uh, and, and everybody, no matter what archetype and no matter who you are, has both strengths and weaknesses. So that there's a double-edged sword. There's a duality to everybody in life. There's a light and a dark side. Leaders, as we know, like their lighter sides can be that they're charismatic and they're trustworthy and they can be hardworking. Um, but then weaknesses are, you know, a lot of times leaders carry uh, the burden of their peers. Um, there's some leaders that can have excessive pride. There's leaders that can feel a little bit, uh, it can be a little bit narcissistic at times. I mean, and, and these are just people in general, right? So they're, they're, they are capable of the same faults as any of us. So then what we do is we say, okay, um, you know what, like if you, if you have an opportunity, like when you connect with a leader, right, these are people that can make your job easier. They can help you kind of influence other people in a positive way. They can lead by example and utilize coalition tactics that help people get in line. Um, and then there's certain communication strategies, right? Most of these people, they, you can gain power by giving them power. They want opportunities to show what they're capable of. And if you show that you appreciate them, that you respect them, and most importantly, that you trust them, that goes a long way with a leader. And so, again, this is just a snapshot. The book gives a, a little bit more complete view. And we brought in performance coaches from all over the world, male and female, to give their take as well. So it wasn't just me rambling about in the whole book. But is there anything else you wanted me to address there on that one, Ben? Yeah, the other part of it was, um, which I found really fascinating, was where you spoke about 
this is where it becomes important when you perhaps go into a new role, a new environment. And this is something I've spoken about on the podcast before with Damien Hughes, who speaks about cultural architects. Yeah, and That sprung to my mind straight away that you're going into this new environment, which we speak about a lot going into new roles and really um, highlighting or recognizing the leaders in that dressing room, not just necessarily the captain, if it's in, in terms of football, yeah. but we see the leaders, don't we? And that's where we can have that influence both positively and probably negatively at times. Yeah. Well, I mean, to that point, I'm just referencing a note here that we actually talk about in conscious coaching, but also, you know, my, my next book is, you know, people forget that leadership is not just about an individual. It is about the followers, or we can call them stakeholders, if you want, the other individuals. It's also about the environment that you're in and the context and the history of an organization. Leadership, and, and this is kind of my next book, really tearing down a lot of the fallacies of leadership that we hear. We're so used to these tropes that it's some enigmatic character that comes in and saves the day. Really, all it takes is one deceitful follower to, to throw an entire wrench in leadership, especially today. One influential, deceitful follower can throw a wrench in it. We see it in pro sport all the time. There are coaches that get sacked because they don't know how to control and manage the room. Yet for some reason in performance, people still want to run around arguing front squat versus back squat when they're getting fired because they can't recognize the power dynamics between head of medical, the GM and their role. You know, and and that's when I decided to make that stuff my doctorate. I'm essentially getting my doctorate in power dynamics. And it's what we teach in our live events now, because it's like you have coaches saying, why did this happen? Why don't we get paid fairly? Why don't we do this? And I'm like, well, you make yourself look like a jackass on Twitter being argumentative. You're constantly trying to burn down other people and you're not understanding how to deal with people. You know, like I'm sorry, the majority of people we work for or answer to don't care about super maximal eccentric training. It doesn't mean it's not valuable, but it just means is this really what we believe to be the biggest issue in sport right now that we don't have enough loading methods, you know? And so, and I know I'm animated about it, but you've got to remember anybody that finds my tone offensive or irritating, I nearly lost my life due to this kind of thinking that everything could just be solved by those kinds of like, here, here's this, here's this, um, uh, I, I didn't get much sleep last night. My little guy's been sick. Here is this solution. Let's make this one size fits all solution for everybody. As opposed to seeing the four, put it this way. I can have better training and still not have great leadership. On the other hand, if I get better buy-in and more engagement and more commitment, even a crappy program, if I wrote one, not saying anybody should, is going to have a way more impact. And it's just like, you have to have upstream thinking. How many great programs have we seen out there that are coached poorly? Or people just don't do them because they're not bought in. But I'll save that for another day. I don't want to go off the rails. No, that, I think there's so much value in it. And again, something we've referenced a lot is speaking about leadership in any role that you're in. You don't have to necessarily be a leader or a head of a like sports, head of sports science, head of performance or whatever it is. But you are a leader in some way, shape or form, aren't you, in whatever role you're in. So learning about this stuff, I think, is really important. Yeah. And then just remembering to your point, leadership is about the lead as much as it about like you talking about, uh, you know, leadership without mentioning stakeholders and those other things is like, you know, trying to clap with one hand. It just doesn't make sense. And I think that that's the thing that we really hope to tear down because Ben, and I don't know if this is your experience and I don't mean to flip it on you, but I, I genuinely would like to get to know you. Um, you know, how many people do you think would love to be leaders 
but feel like they don't have the classic background, or maybe they have some skeletons in their closet or some mistakes. They, because of how we built certain leaders up worldwide, whether it's the stories we tell about people in history or CEOs or sport coaches, there are so many good people who don't even attempt it because they don't feel good enough. When in reality, they haven't heard the whole story. You know, they haven't heard the whole story about the mistakes and how, you know, you've got to do things a certain way sometimes. And, and it's really the scars and the shrapnel that you gather through your mistakes that make you a good leader. But maybe that's just me. I just feel like you always hear about, you know, certain certain people and it's like you've got to be Captain America or you've got to be like the most perfect thing ever in order to be an effective leader. And that I just don't think that's true. I think if you've got anything about you, you know that people have got history of some sort, don't you? Like there's, there's always going to be something that comes along. And I think that truth side, like hearing your story on the, in the book, and I'm not just, I don't want to reference the book all the time, but hearing your story in the book straight away gives you that sort of bond when you're reading it because you learn about what's what you've gone through beforehand. And that's obviously yours, but then other all coaches out there are going to have something, some some sort of experiences that, whether it's an athlete buying into them or, or a fellow coach or a peer, like we need to be truthful, don't we? And, and use this stuff in our, in our, um, in our programming and our approach. Yeah. I mean, listen, uh, I got told by no fewer than 20 people that if I told that story in the book, they're like, you may never get another job again. You know, do you want to be that transparent? Do you want to be this? Because excuse me, performance is an industry that's not really good at being vulnerable right? Like everybody's scared. I mean, I remember back when I started the podcast, people are like, oh, you're going to, everybody thinks they're going to get in trouble or blacklisted by this eye of Sauron figure. And I don't mean this to come across how it might sound to people that don't know me, but it's been the opposite. Ever since I told that story and I started a podcast, we've gotten more job opportunities. We, and then we work in consulting roles with more high profile and not even just in sport and other organizations, because that makes you relatable. Yeah. And I think once I just quit being scared about all that stuff and realize that there's nobody, anybody that doesn't want to hire you or work with you or consult with you because of your honesty, you don't want to do business with them anyway. You don't, you know, because I'll take, and I, and we've hired, you know, we've just hired our fifth employee and we're fully funded, you know, by my, by, uh, you know, book royalties, by my wife and I's, you know, life savings and whatever. But, you know, I don't want anybody working with me that I, that can't self-disclose and help me to get to know them as a person. Where does that trust come from? And it doesn't mean you sit on the couch like Oprah and, you know, you cry your eyes out. It just means that I need to know where you failed, what you've done, what you struggled with, and more importantly, where you stand on certain issues. So I hope that really empowers coaches to realize that, that's all part in the language bullshit. It mm. just is. And, and you're going to, if you're good at what you do and you're straightforward and you understand your values, you're not going to have trouble finding work. Yeah. I think that there's a skill in that though, as well, isn't there, Brett, in terms of telling that story? Cause I think I'm trying to think about the majority of coaches out there now. And this, this applies to me as well. Like the thought of then doing that will scare a lot of people because they'll be like, I'm putting myself out there. I'm going to be really vulnerable. People aren't going to like it. And that's that's definitely going to be the case. So there's definitely a skill to that as well, isn't there? Like the way you speak about your past and the history and stuff, it, it's obviously something that you've practiced. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, oh, sorry, I practiced it in the sense that I had to rewrite conscious coaching about six times because, you know, you have an editor. Uh, but it's stuff that, you know, this is the core of what we teach now in terms of communication. You know, nobody wakes up and says, oh, my God, I want to be a better communicator today. But the reality is almost every struggle they have 
comes down to some form of communication, not knowing how to tell a story, not knowing how to persuade somebody, not knowing how to do this, right? And that's why we've now made it our life's work to teach coaches that. But we had somebody on our podcast, a woman named Kendra Hall, sharp woman, works for Success Magazine. And she said, you know, really just stories really need to only have four components, an an identifiable character. So in my sense, that was uh, a young teenager who was angry, depressed, and going through, you know, some things in his life that he didn't know how to deal with, um, an authentic emotion, right, which I just expressed as well, a moment, my moment was the minute I went into that hospital, you know, another moment you could say that led to that was, you know, uh, friends turning to drugs, parents getting divorced, but it was really the, the hospital that transformed me, and then specific details, and, and this is no different than if somebody has a resume, right? An identifiable character is just, who are you? What have you done? What's your past experience, right? Um, being able to express some kind of emotion through vivid language and not sounding like a robot, you know, explaining who you are, how you got there in details. But we, we just had somebody the other day because we host a workshop called Speaker School. And this is exactly what they wanted to deal with. Now, they had worked in the NFL, uh, National Football League, uh, 10 years. And they said, you know, there's ways that I need to be better at presenting to the team. You know, I've done this a long time. It's not a confidence thing. I just tend to ramble and I don't know what's, you know, the most relevant thing or the right thing to say at the right moment every time. And we were really able to help them pare this down and get, you know, to the core of their message. And that impact them significantly, you know, because it's not just about getting the attention of the locker room. It's about asking your boss for a raise. It's about renegotiating renegotiating your contract. So yes, it is hard. But if you just remember at the end of the day, you've got to understand your context, understand your audience, understand yourself and understand some key elements of storytelling that can go a long way. Just a very quick heads up. Anyone that doesn't know about our online community, it's an online platform where we host all of our webinars and presentations we have available for our members. You also get access to our uh, our members WhatsApp group where there's some great discussions between our members Some of the content we've recently uploaded, we did a Plyometrics in Football webinar with Yuri Pagel, Head of Strength at Ajax. Also, um, Blood Flow Restriction and Recovery in Professional Sport by Dr. Warren Bradley from Hytro. Movement Biomechanics of Professional Players by Shane Murphy, who's working with the SFA as a football scientist. And our last two presentations from our event at Stoke City, They were off-field programming for professional footballers by Nathan Plaskett and Max Velocity Monitoring and Exposure for YDP players by Jordan White. So all those presentations, along with many, many others, are available to watch and listen back on our online community. So if you're not already a member, the good news is if you go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab there, Sign up, that will give you one month free. You can check out all the content that's available on there. After the free month, it's only £4.99 per month going forward and you get continued access to all the content. Plus, you get added into our WhatsApp group and you can join in some of the great conversations that go in there as well. So if you're not a member, go and check it out, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab and sign up there. Here's part two of the podcast with Brett Bartholomew. Do you see from your experience, Brett, as well, from people that you work with that have got that different level of communication that can get things across really um, precisely when they're asking questions or trying to make a point, 
that they've had something happen previously, or maybe they've been in a role previously. So we, we've talked about it before where people have worked in a bar, for example, and you think that has no crossover to working at a Premier League football club. But then you've had real controversial arguments with people in that position. Then you might have to do the same in that role. Do you, do you see there's been a pattern like that? Sure. I mean, we know from anything, and there's two parts to this. So if I get off topic, bring me back. Um, yes, we know that the indirect impacts the direct all the time, right? Like saying no working in a bar and, and or any situation sales, I think something that's highly demonized by strength and conditioning, even though their entire job is education <laughs> and sales. Um, but that's just because they don't like to look at themselves a certain way and they ignore the truth. Uh, and or because for some reason they think all sales are evil, despite the fact that everything we're using to communicate right now, somebody had to sell to us, so neither here nor there. I have a whole course on cognitive dissonance about that and how that hurts coaches. But to say things like that don't impact coaching is like saying squats don't impact acceleration. If an alien came down from Earth and they saw us doing this thing where people had 200 kilos on their back standing up and sitting down, you know, and it was like, what does that help? And we're like, oh, I can help with acceleration and, and one's takeoff ability and, and whatever. I mean, assuming if they're higher order intelligence, they'll get it. They can piece two and two together. But my point is, is that doesn't look like that. Yeah. The weight room in general is non-specific work that has indirect and direct transfer to sporting activities, right? Um, now, on the flip side of that, just like we do have to have analytics and assessments within sport and performance, you do need to have that in communication. So we once had somebody that was like, uh, you know, I don't feel like I need to come to one of your workshops because I was a bartender for 20 years. I feel like I know how to talk to people. But then what I'd say is, you know, like, all right, well, that's people in one context. You know, have you actually evaluated? So a big part of my doctorate is we've created the first uh, true social skills evaluation that has been utilized uh, in, in kind of these contexts for leadership, something that looks at 26 different categories of verbal and nonverbal speak, but also interaction rituals, turn-taking, leveraging of power dynamics, influence tactics, things that, you know, probably don't have time to go into ad nauseum in, in, in the podcast, but then we do a lot of video analysis and replay. So oh, I'll give you an example. We had somebody that worked in uh, Premiership Rugby Com, and they were talking about a certain scenario they, they struggled with. We put them in that scenario. We pair them with somebody else in the workshop. Okay. Everybody's got an evaluation. They've got a self-evaluation form because we're going to have our own egocentric bias. We have a peer evaluation form because we're also going to have, you know, external bias. And then we have a group evaluation form because there's going to be group bias. So they interact. We keep the scene about three to five minutes and it's real life, right? Like they're utilizing archetypes to inform their behavior and blah, blah. We're, we're manipulating constraints much like we do in training. And then at the end, we have them quietly evaluate themselves while they get quietly evaluated by their peers. And then they say, okay, I'll give you an example. I give myself a three on assertiveness. Here's why. When he came at me with this, this is how I tried to counter. Well, we had somebody else in the room that was from Spain. And they said, actually, I would have given you a one on assertiveness. Here's why. Here's what it would have looked like if I did it. And they're not, they're not challenging each other. They're having productive conversations about talk. No different than when I trained a boxer who another boxer taught him, hey, try doing this with your hook. Try doing this with your, and, and so now we started seeing leaders in different industries share tactics. And at the end of all this, uh, we watch the video back and we do video analysis. And we're like, do you see where you did this? And, and the guy's like, oh my God, I didn't even recognize. And we're like, all good, man, let's, let's do it again. So we, we think about coaches, this is your soundbite. Coaches, ironically, 
are one of the only, well, coaching, ironically, is one of the only professions that does not practice what it actually does. Coaches in performance will practice training and teaching the clean and doing this and doing assessments, but they don't actually practice the interaction. And which is crazy because they could say, well, I do that every day. I wake up a husband every day. It doesn't mean I shouldn't work on my marriage. You know, athletes will do scrimmages. Oh, it's fourth and one, or there's 30 seconds left in this and there's whatever, but coaches don't put themselves under pressure and do that. And so that was the big gap that we saw that we're like, if you look at what makes a great coach and what makes a great leader, the research will take you to the same place. It'll tell you it comes down to as non-sexy as it sounds, communication and influence. It is a process of behavior change and social interaction. Why the hell are people not evaluating it and training it? For the reason you mentioned earlier, people are scared to be vulnerable and open, but it's not people. Sadly, we realize it's mainly those in the performance profession. Because when we have cops and military and things like that, they're like, dude, if we don't do this, we die. We have a lot of firefighters that come and it's amazing seeing the impact they have on strength coaches or people in performance and a lot of physios too, that may feel a certain way about role-playing. Meanwhile, firefighters and cops are right up there doing it because they know that they have to do this as part of their training every day. Lives are at risk. And so that's something that I just really hope changes. I hope coaches, if they really take this stuff seriously, they realize that we're behind. We're behind. Other professions do this. You can look up the medical literature when we get off. Look up the use of improv in medicine, the use of role-playing in medicine, because billions of dollars are lost in lawsuits due to issues with interactions. So that's what we're trying to spearhead. It's just, I think coaches have to get out of their own way and realize that there's more to this job than sets and reps. And you just got to ask yourself, that's not me attacking sets and reps. I'll still talk undulating periodization and all this stuff that all you want. It's just, guys, it's time to evolve. But I, I think I just sometimes yell into the void, buddy. I don't think anybody listens to me. No, I think it's you're breaking down what a lot of people have highlighted as issues because we speak about communication relationships as being like key issues or key things to focus on, but then we leave it at that. And this is then peeling back the, the onion, isn't it? This is going into the layers of actually how we go about it. Well, and the tricky thing is, you know, what we're trying to solve as a company right now is essentially a distribution problem. How do you get everybody aware of what you're doing? You know, one mistake I made early on when we first started the apprenticeship and they were selling slow, we call them the apprenticeship because you're never going to be perfect at it, right? You got to keep going and keep working at it. Now, you know, it's a very different problem because, you know, people have done it. We've been doing it since 2019, but you can only share it so many mediums, All right? If I share it on Instagram, well, that stuff's not going to go viral. So people that don't know about me aren't going to hear about it. You know, we spent over a hundred thousand dollars on paid ads, but that was also during a time in the pandemic when a lot of these ad, you know, Apple did their privacy thing and that hurts small businesses then because you don't see our ads, but you'll see Nike's ads. You'll see everybody else's ads. So what we're trying to solve for as a business now is how do we get that word out to more people? Because the mistake I was saying I was making early on is when it sold slow at first, I thought, oh, people don't believe in it. They don't like it. And then we just had so many people that signed up later on. They're like, dude, I'd never even heard about this until a friend of me, uh, mine. We forget that there's so much out there. And also whatever you're following on social media, it's just going to show you more of. So if you're not following leadership and communication and behavior change, you're just going to see more of, you know, the training stuff that you double tap and whatever. And so our goal now is to get that out and, and continue. And I think um, we made a lot of headways in the performance space. Once we first made headways into medicine, military, tactical, because strength coaches get a lot of FOMO. 
And they feel like, well, if all these other industries are doing it, then, and, and that was disappointing. It was like, we had to get contracts with Microsoft and Facebook and Wells Fargo for certain stubborn strength coaches to fall in line or their performance director had to come for their strength coaches to come, you know, the lead physio had to come for everybody else to feel secure to come. And it's like, guys, don't, don't build the well once you're thirsty. Mm. I can promise you this. Just like I can tell a fighter, I'm not telling you lifting weights is going to guarantee you're going to win the fight, but being weaker will increase your chances of losing it. I'm not telling you communication training is going to solve all your problems. I can tell you being a poor communicator will almost guaranteed make everything in your life worse. 100%. Are you that? You know, we can argue front squats, back squats, these squats, catching the clean, non-catching the clean all day. Tell me where being a worse communicator and less self-aware helps you. <laughs> like, yeah. And why even are you about that? Just come get better. We normalize failure. If you come, Ben, and I'd love you to come. We'll talk about it. Come as my guest. If you fail, dude, we applaud. You know what I mean? Like, that's awesome. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's get back in the saddle. Let's do it again. Nobody's sitting there like, you know, art of coaching staff don't come up and like, let me show you the right way to do it. Like we want, and I think that was something else that was lacking in performance is damn man, all the content is so stiff. Everybody's so, you know, scared. And when I came up, it was like, you would see people in one university where they're, you know, they're attire and they're like, it's like West side story at war with another university. And it's like, golly, like, let's have some fun again. But I don't know. No, it's, away. no it's, such, it's such a good point. But yeah, I, I just fully believe that. I fully believe that you're just getting into the intricacies of what we actually need to be focusing on. Brett, in terms of the, those different industries and different sort of demographics that you're working with there, has there been any that have stood out to you where you maybe didn't think you were going to take as much from them as you actually have? I know you've mentioned, obviously, the cops and, and the fire department, but is there any others? Yeah, um, man, you ask really good questions. I'm so thankful for that because, you know, when you're a guest on certain podcasts, it seems like it's just it's not very interactive and they don't always listen. So I just want to give you that compliment, man. It means a lot that you listen and have a true discussion. Um, give me a moment to think one that I haven't, that, that I learned more from than I expected. I mean, I'm an inherently really curious person. Um, I think if you'll allow me to answer it this way, I know that every profession has their issues and they're more similar than, than, than they are different. But I think one that was surprising is the gentleman that came from Chick-fil-A, which I'm not sure, do they have Chick-fil-A internationally? Um, I don't think it's in the, I could be, I don't know, actually, I don't think it's in the UK. Okay. Well, let me just breathe. It's a fast food restaurant company, which I know sounds silly, but they're, they're, it's very different, right? This isn't like, I'm not saying it's wholesome. Uh, they primarily do chicken, but they're well, I mean, their revenue annually in 2019, the number on well, the numbers right here, 11.3 billion. And they're notorious for their leadership practices. These things are paragons of efficiency. That's what you need to know. They're, they're paragons of efficiency. And they're, they're well known. Like it's, it's an actually, it's one of the only places that you can say you went and were in a leadership position in fast food and like not be looked down on. Like it's very impressive and they spend a ton of money on leadership development. And so to hear that folks like that had problems as well, I think was just surprising at the level that they did. I think Microsoft as well. Um, when, when my book, when they first had me out to speak, I was like, you know, you're, you're kind of surprised but you're also not. Cause I wrote the book at the time when I was just a strength coach. And I don't mean just a strength coach. Like that's all I was, but that's all I was doing at the time. And I wrote that book 
knowing that it applied to other professions, archetypes are ubiquitous, but you don't always know if the reader is going to learn that, right? Like we still have some people that are like, oh, I'd love to get your book, but I'm not a strength coach. And you're like, dude, I read books by doctors. I'm not a doctor. I, I can pull something from anything. But when they were like, hey, we, the archetypes really hit with us. And I said, well, can you tell me why? And they said, well, you know, we have issues with people that work on the tech development side that don't get along with the sales side, that don't get along with the people that build the cloud and the engineers that don't do this. So just, just being reminded that all these organizations have it, but then a lot of the reasons they have it, because you said, well, Brett, they spend a lot of money on leadership development. It doesn't seem to be working for them. When we dove into the research of that, it was a lot of them were not doing interactive development. It was, let's pay a speaker to come out and do rah, rah bullshit, you know, like get on the energy bus, be positive, be a transformational leader and all this, but they weren't actually getting people up and evaluating and putting them under constraints and making them interact. And so, yeah, I just think that that is always enlightening and to hear the problems they face and the macro level of it. But one of the most rewarding was, like I said, Phoenix, Arizona, seeing a strength coach that came from a university that had come off several championships, too cool for school. Meanwhile, a firefighter gets up and just starts getting into it, you know, and just seeing him be like, why, you know, it's hard for, you can talk crap about another strength coach. Cause you know, the field's combative, but to see this guy who's literally saving lives and one of the lead firefighters in a division in Oakland, California, it, it was just like, dude, you shouldn't need that to go up there. Like, you know, and I think that was just the thing that I really want for the industry. I don't want this industry to be is because even though our, our, our focus is so much more than the performance field now, man, that's still where I came from. You know, that's still where I came from. And I've been through all phases of it. I went through where, you know, you, you feel like a welcome newcomer to when we started building a brand and had success with conscious coaching, you know, 90% of people are happy for you 10% think you're a sellout and all this. And you're like, all we're trying to do is pave a new path for coaches to help them realize you can take the lessons you've learned in sport and performance and fitness and whatever you want to call it and, and, and move it out. Like we're trying to create new avenues for you. So be a little bit more supportive of each other, get out of your comfort zone. And this field can do really, really meaningful things. Because I'll tell you, when I went to some of these places, they would be like, they think you're just, most of the world has no idea what a strength coach is. Yeah. You know, one company was like, we thought you were going to be like Jillian Michaels and a fitness instructor. <laughs> I, I remember calling my wife and I'm like, here we are. We have this field that our uses, if everything it does is rocket science and the broader world has no clue what it is. So I just hope, I hope the field gets a little bit healthier in that regard and embraces people that are doing the things that you're doing and like continues to embrace people that want to take different paths. It's not bad if you get to a point and you realize I'd like to do more than just help people in this context. And, and if that's all you want to do, that's great too. But maybe you want to do that and have a speaking career. Maybe you want to do that and start a podcast like you have been. You can do that and it makes the field better. 100%. No, no, I love that. I think I think it's so important. And and like you mentioned before, looking into these different industries, these different um, these different people in different roles is not going to do us any harm, is it? Like like you mentioned oh. before, like it's only going to do good. Even if we learn how not to do things, how not to speak to people, it's going to teach us something. Yeah, I mean, seeing people. I mean, it's one of the biggest. Um, my wife would say the same thing. It's one of the biggest joys of our career seeing strength coaches mesh with doctors, with people in the business realm, with military. I mean, this is how society and knowledge developed, right? Whether you look at 
conversations people had in ancient Rome and ancient Greece and, and, you know, any ancient civilization, people went on walks and they talked and they thought about ideas and they challenged their ideas. And, you know, it wasn't doctors that just hung out with doctors and it wasn't lawyers that just hung out with lawyers. And again, why, why do coaches tell athletes not to early specialize, but then coaches do that? You know, coaches participate in the purest form of early specialization. And when I say, you know, it's, it's tricky because we look at coach as a synonym of leadership. But in, in the context that I just mentioned, I'm talking about people in the performance realm. Those in the performance realm, it's like it's early specialization. They don't get out of their own, you know, they'll read books by people and whatever, but they're not actually interacting with it. You can read books about gorillas all you want, but Jane Goodall can tell you to learn about them. You actually got to go live amongst them. And I just, I don't get it. I don't get why we become such a, so okay with observing. And, and a lot of it goes to the field's got really uncomfortable attitudes about money. You know, the most common excuses people use will time and money. Who the hell do you know, pro athlete or otherwise ever wakes up and is like, oh my God, I have so much time and money. Mm. You know, like you prioritize it. Like if somebody thought 3000 pounds is expensive, let's say I just took that number. Well, you're going to spend 3000 pounds on something other than your living and all that. Like you're, you're spending that money somewhere. And it's how many more certifications do you need? How many more kettlebell and mobility and 30 other, and not to crap on those things, right? Cause you can have, you can walk and chew gum, but I just ask coaches to think of one thing, whether you're a coach, a physio, anything like that, how much are you spending on the interpersonal side versus how much you've spent on the physiology, on the training side and whatever? Because if you deal with people, remember it's a so, coaching is a social act performed in social environments amongst social beings and therefore is a social profession but you're not spending money and time and effort learning those things and challenging your assumptions, but you're spending all of that on certs and everything that deal with mobility and physiology and biomechanics, something is wrong. You have a massive asymmetry in the market and you would not look at that and in any other context and think that's, so, nobody's like, oh, I'm just going to put all my money in crypto. <laughs> I mean, you can, it huh? doesn't work out for that many people. For every millionaire you hear about that's 13, there's a lot of other people that their marriage is ruined, their life's ruined because, gee, they thought that one was going to go to the moon. You're so right on that. You put it brilliantly as well. I'm not just saying this because I'm speaking to you, but on that final page of the book where you speak about the financial, having financial freedom, I don't think anyone can read that and be like, nah, that's not me. I think everyone, yeah. everyone relates to it. But the difference is whether you speak about it and actually believe it or not, yeah, well, and like, uh, here, I'm going to look this up real quick. We we put a, a, a thing together that was free. My father was a financial advisor for 40 years, and I wouldn't know anything, you know, much about money, you know, if, if it wasn't for him. So if people just go to artofcoaching.com slash money, couldn't be more basic than that. There's a free guide, excuse me, that we put together that can help you if you're like, hey, I am in a financially tough position. I am in this, like, there's a free guide right there. And you don't have to pay anything. In our courses, of course, we have other things. I'm not trying to, like, fuck it. I am trying to sell you guys something. I'm trying to sell you some knowledge that you're not going to get at the UKSCA, the NSCA, the, any of the ASCAs. And, and I think that was a struggle as well as I'm supportive of those organizations and I'm supportive of that, but they won't, you know, they won't speak about these things. And if they do, they don't go in depth. And then we had one organization that was like, ah, we won't give you CEUs for that because we don't view it as relevant to our certification. But then two years later, they tried creating a course on the same material. And it's like, guys, you nobody is coming to save you. 
you need to do it yourself, you know, and we've given you those resources. They're everything I wish that I had. I mean, I literally, I, I'm, I'm being selfish and honest here. Everything we've created is stuff I wish that I had. What I wish I would have known about business, what I wish I would have known about finances, because I just came out of strength and conditioning knowing strength and conditioning. So learn these things, learn these things. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm happy to answer anything else you got. And, and I appreciate, you know, the wide range of, of questions, man. And you never have to agree with me just for the sake of it. You know, if something I'm saying is wrong, call it. I just, I don't think that telling coaches to be more independent and understanding that you need to evolve within your career is, is something that is, you know, something that should be <laughs> that polarizing. No, I, I do. I do agree on that. And it's something we touched on a lot. Brett, I've realized that I've got that caught up in this conversation and in this topic that I've talked about a couple of archetypes at the start and we only mentioned one. So I want to be respectful of your time because I realize you've not got all day, but I wanted you to just touch as well on working with the underdog because yeah. this, this was really fascinating as well. So in terms of what, what we said about the leader before, how we'd sort of amend our approach, when you've got this underdog, can you sort of define what you mean and how you'd go about approaching them? Yeah. And again, for anybody listening, obviously I'm being brief just for the context of, uh, you know, the podcast, we could go on for days with any of these people are incredibly complex, but the underdog is the eponymous name kind of like gives credence to is somebody that feels overlooked, underestimated, disrespected, kind of chip on their shoulder. I identify with the underdog. I'm part underdog Wolverine. You know, I'm a mix of things just like all of us are. And the underdog, you know, they're motivated by improving. They, they want to feel respected. They want to feel like, Hey, you know, I, I am good enough at this. I, I have proved myself. And, and we and just about every damn sport movie has an underdog, you know, whether it's anybody from like Ted Lasso to Rudy and whatever, uh, and we know that their strengths are usually that they're very determined, they're very hardworking, they're persistent, but they're also self-sabotaging, right? There's a lot of self-doubt. There can be hesitancy. There can be anxiety. And even if you're like, well, that doesn't speak to me. Okay. Well, they're self-sabotaging in the, in the sense that sometimes they don't know when enough is enough. Not everything can be solved by hard work, just like a, in boxing. Not everything can be solved by punching harder. You need to learn how to block and counter and be agile. You need to understand how to balance your timing. Otherwise, you're going to burn yourself out. So these are blue collar types that work really hard and, and really strive to make the most of any opportunity given to them. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of different strategies you can utilize, right? Like, if, if you're trying to motivate one, which usually isn't the case because they're pretty self-motivated, right? Like you, you can create scenarios where failure and adversity and competition are going to continue to incur, uh, occur. And so like you can get them a little bit more exposed to, hey, you, you're going to have to learn how to like control some of this fear and this anxiety and determination and drive. So there's a million different tactics you can use. And it depends on the nature of that underdog. Are they somebody that you know, does this, or they, somebody that does that. But the whole point is by understanding certain aspects of them and who they are and how they present their behaviors, that allows you to adjust it. Once again, no different than if we know the injury history or the sport of another individual, we can tailor their training. All we're talking about is periodization for people. It's just periodization for people. And again, not to sound like I'm selling it, I'm just trying to tell you about whether if you're not a book person, we have an online course that gives you a full printout. And we've had really cool uh, pictures sent to us by people in, in uh, professional clubs, people that work with youth, people that work in their own private uh, organization, where they post these archetype guides on their walls in their office. And they'll have their coaches say, hey, 
put a mark by the people that you feel like you coach today. And remember, people are many of them. It's not one. It's not singular. Um, and, and all it does is help train your eye. It's not complete. It's not saying this is who this person is. It is saying these are representations of their behavior that you need to pay attention to. Because if you don't, you know, you could end up, I mean, you, the, the two most powerful words anybody can say is coach said. You do have an impact on people's lives. I nearly lost my life due to poor communication in part in the medical world. Like don't, you don't want to risk that. You don't want to risk an opportunity to connect with somebody. Uh, I mean, athletes go through a lot, right? There's athletes that have go with suicidal thoughts and depression. And so like these tools are so powerful if you understand the end game and how it can enhance your chance to connect with them and unite them. Yeah, hundred percent. The bit that stood out for me there, Brett, was where you spoke about, and I think this crosses over to anyone you work with, but it really stood out to me is where you spoke about knowing the right time to engage. And I think that's so valuable, isn't it? When, when we talk about football, for example, where we've got a large group of players, you're having to engage with 20, 25, 30 players. Finding that time is a real skill, isn't it? And making the oh. most out of that time. Especially in the, in the sense of the Wolverine. And, and you see that again. I think it's hilarious because I just started watching it. You know, Ted Lasso, if you've seen it, and, and Roy Kent was that kind of football Wolverine, right? He was kind of withdrawn from the group, but he was also part leader. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, the Wolverine is somebody that they can appear not to be on board. They're kind of an irascible persona. Um, I mean, the name should say it all, right? If anybody's familiar with the X-Men character, but these are people, you know, anytime I've dealt with a Wolverine and these are all representative of athletes I worked with over 15 years. And plus now we coach coaches. You see the same thing in coaches and leaders, yeah. right? It's all the same. Um, and the last thing you want to do with a Wolverine is like address them with whatever you need to come down on them, like in front of a crowd. There are certain people it's better to kind of meet them where they're at. Uh, we had a gentleman that worked in the NBA that, you know, he tried addressing an athlete in the training room and it just went horrible. You know, and he was like, I just realized that the training room represented, you know, injury and not being able to play the game and, and these things with him. And I had to learn to go out when he was shooting hoops and, and shooting baskets away from the team to talk to him. So we say in my that we couldn't cover this really in um, conscious coaching. There's a lot we couldn't cover because, you know, a book is limited by about 300 pages if you actually want somebody to read it. And it's just, you know, it's a conversation starter. But there's four main things that really impact like, you know, your, your communication tactics and, and human behavior in general. It is environment, the environment that you're in. It is going to be the drives. And if you don't know what I mean by that, just go to artofcoaching.com, uh, what drives you. There's a whole thing on drives. It's researched by Antonio Damasio, professor of cognitive neuroscience at USC that we've adapted. Um, you know, what they're driven by. Uh, there is the timing element. And then there are social factors, right? We are immensely influenced by the people around us. We are immensely influenced by the environment of the moment. Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize talking about this, but timing is everything. And so when I say it's periodization for people, it really is. Just like if you want a hypertrophic adaptation, you got to use different loading strategies than an absolute strength, than, than you do a, a, you know, a, a speed strength and anything like that. You have got to find the right gear for the right hill and the right communication tactics and time for the right individual. And you're not going to win them all. Let me just say that, Ben. You know, like I, I, this is now my life's work. I don't win every interaction and every interaction isn't meant to be won. There are certain examples of timing that, you know, I tried working with an athlete for two to three years and they were a huge pain in the ass. And then, you know, they, they matured a little bit. They had an injury, nearly cost them their career. Now they want to listen. 
You know, we just put out a podcast with a gentleman that played in the NFL for 15 years on our podcast. And I said, Richie, was there a time where like, no matter what a coach did, they just couldn't have reached you. He's like, yeah, hundred percent. After my first pro bowl and this and that, you couldn't have told me anything, you know? And he was like, I had to have life humble me a little bit. And then, you know, I was somebody that could, you could really get buy-in from. And so, man, we've, we've interviewed four or five pro athletes and then members of special forces on ours. And I, I know that you've had a wide range of guests as well. It shouldn't come as a huge shock to people that timing and environment are huge parts of successful interactions. Yeah. hundred percent. Brett, like I said, I want to be really respectful of your time and I really appreciate you coming on and, and going for everything that we've touched on now oh, because Ben, ben you've been, been amazing. Great. You get to do the last, you get to do, I know you wanted to do kind of like a five rapid fire at the end or however many. Have you got I'm, time for that? I'm giving you extra time because you've been an amazing host, an amazing conversationalist. And I, I yeah, I'm happy to, man. Fire away. Perfect. Well, what we normally ask, Brett, is first being who have been some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Yeah, I'm not going to say parents and stuff like that, because that's obvious, right? Like, love my folks, love that. Um, Now, it might disappoint people because I'm not just going to talk about strength coaches. I think somebody that was, when I got out of the hospital, his work was tremendously influential on me was the author, Robert Green, who we had on our podcast, uh, wrote The 48 Laws of Power, all those kinds of things. It, It helped me make sense of certain things I had gone through in life when people tried taking advantage of me and playing power games, it was really the first interest in that. And now we're taking more of a research based view to continue that. So it was really nice. Uh, a moment for me this year is, you know, when I was telling him that, Hey, my doctorate now is essentially in power dynamics. And this is what we're teaching. I was terrified that he was going to be like mad about that. And the guy was like supportive. Yes. About our workshop. He was like, I love that you're taking this work and taking it further. So man, they say don't meet your heroes and that's usually true, but I'm so grateful that that man didn't shit on us for that, you know, because, um, and then the other one, uh, again, people will laugh at, but in the hospital, you could not, they controlled what you read, read. Um, you could not watch a lot of TV because they were scared you'd see, you know, dieting ads, or if you saw sporting ads they thought that that would, you know, so, uh, as ridiculous as it sounds, somebody like Eminem was like, that's all I could listen to is music in the hospital. And, hear me out. I identify with him, not because of controversial lyrics or anything like that, but because if you know anything about hip hop and I'm a huge hip hop guy, not mumble rap BS, but true hip hop, the amount of detail that he puts into his lyricism and wordplay is the epitome of craftsmanship. Like, you know, in the song Mockingbird, he makes it so a different syllable or vowel sound hits it every time the snare hits on the drum beat you know, every word, the amount of syllable sound combines that this guy does is unbelievable. And so for us at Art of Coaching, we always have seven layers deeper than people think. If you see one of our slides, even if it looks like a basic slide in a presentation, there's 15 different things that you're not seeing. And so the attention to detail, the focus, the commitment to craftsmanship, and just the edge and tenacity and respect for that is something I love. So I'd say like a Robert Greene, an Eminem, I gave another example of, you know, Jay-Z, who I'm not actually a huge fan of his music, but this was somebody that was bona fide as a lyricist, as a musician that was not scared to evolve as an entrepreneur. And that gave me a lot of confidence when I was really scared to say, okay, I love strength and conditioning. I love this, but I want to evolve. I want to help people solve other problems. And I want to, I want to consult and be involved in a lot of different industries. I want people to say that man 
helps people solve some of their biggest problems. That's what I want. And I want people to know that I'm useful and that I really care. And when I thought about that, because people are like, oh, you're going to lose credibility if you're not training athletes all the time. I'm like, I don't see Jay-Z in the booth all the time. I don't see Dr. Dre. Like, no, I don't give a shit about that. Other industries, people can move on and do great things and still be well-respected. I'm going to do that. And so, and then I take, of course, I'm, I'm a big history buff, the Leonardo da Vinci's, the Benjamin Franklin's, Leonardo da Vinci. And this is the final one I'll give for this reason. I'm very hard on myself. I have just the right amount of self-hate just the right amount of self-hate. And I, I'm very much a recovering perfectionist. And Leonardo da Vinci died with the majority of his work incomplete. You know, we know him for the Mona Lisa. We know him for all these things, but he had so much stuff that he didn't complete. And one of his central tenets was at least leave it so somebody else can pick it back up for you when you're gone. So I have hard drives and files that if I die, heaven forbid, Somebody, you know, hopefully a friend of mine can, can go in there and piece that together and do something, you know, and um, I just think that it's okay to know that you're, you're, you're not going to leave this earth having won it all, you know, like you're not going to get everything you want done. I'm terrified that my next book is not going to be what I want it to be, but it's the best that I can make it right now being a dad managing a business during a pandemic, trying to get a doctorate and do it. I don't, I don't get to get a million dollars to disappear into a castle and write unobstructed for a year. Right. So like just remembering it can't be perfect and that's why it's going to be good. So those are, those are a few people that inspire me in different ways. I love that Eminem has been brought up as, as a person of influence to this part of the podcast. Oh, <laughs> I mean, his most recent albums are some of his best work. If anybody hasn't listened to Kamikaze, the song, The Ringer, I mean, if people just read the lyrics and understood the amount of double entendre, but people don't listen to lyrics anymore. Oh. You know, it's trash. And so, yeah, don't get me started. What is your biggest strength as a practitioner? Uh, the fact that I care more than the average person in terms of everything that I do, you know, now that's a double-edged sword as well as everything is, but you know, I treat every podcast interview, every presentation, every interaction, like it's my first and my last. And sometimes that gets my arousal too high. Like after this, I'll have to like, I can't talk for like an hour. I'll need to go take a walk or whatever, because I can be extroverted and gregarious and, and all that in the moment, but I'm really very much an introvert you know, and, and so this stuff takes a lot out of me. So I think my biggest, yeah, my biggest strength is also one of my biggest weaknesses. Like I will just go really hard on everything. Um, I, I think another thing is, man, like I do genuinely like curiosity. I'm a genuinely curious, curious. And I have to say that because we all hate when somebody gets interviewed and they're like, what's your biggest weakness? And they're like, oh, I care too much. So, but like, I'm a really curious person, also a double-edged sword. It will take me down a lot of rabbit holes. Um, I'd say if I had to do a third one, and I know this goes away from biggest strength when I mentioned three things, I am not very competitive with others. I'm very competitive with myself. So a million other art of coaching upstarts could, you know, somebody could try to be like, oh, I'm going to take out Brett Bartholomew and what he does. And to a point, I mean, if they're blatantly ripping us off and things like that, you know, well, that's another thing. But I'm not very distracted by those. It, the market's big enough for people, right? Like if they're smart business people, they would actually not come after us because they'd understand they could have a different market yeah. and who's not for them is for us and who's not for us. It's them. And so smart entrepreneurs understand competitions for losers. Yeah, definitely. Brett, what would be your top bit of advice for a younger Brett? 
Um, just, I mean, I, I think some of the best advice is, you know, remember that super compensation happens in business and life as much as it happens in training. You can't force it. It's not going to come faster than, you know, you just can't force it. You know, there's certain things that you've got to lay a brick, you know, you've got to lay a brick piece by piece. That's, we've got to be consistent. We send out a newsletter or two every month. We do a podcast every month, but like, there's sometimes that I think I should be at a certain place by now. And I have to remind myself that I essentially hit the reset button, right? I had achieved a certain point of, you know, competitively, I put a lot of pride in what I did in strength and conditioning. I do think I was one of the best at it. I do. And I don't mean that from a hubris and narcissist standpoint. I cared a great deal. I did my research. I do my work. And I still, I still could go do it right now. I don't forget how to run a warm up and teach a friggin' clean. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I still train people on a concierge basis and I train myself and whatever. But I have to remind myself that I may not be like, I want Art of Coaching to be a multi-million dollar company, not so I can have private yachts and shit, but so that I can employ. I mean, it's great. I mean, we have five full-time employees that all have 401ks. You know, the most I ever made as a strength coach was 60,000. And that was after years of not getting paid shit because I did two unpaid internships. I mean, I had a master's degree, two unpaid internships and all that. And I was still making like 35K. You know, and so I want us to be a multi-million dollar company because I want to make a bigger impact and hire more people and scale it. But I, dude, I'm 36. And I think it just feels like I'm the oldest person, 36 year old in the world because I've been through a lot. But I have to remember there's still time. But I, I think that also goes to my insecurity that it's really hard to find good employees. We found some really good ones. And I get nervous that like, you know, will they see the same five and 10 year vision? Will they understand that this is not going to be an overnight thing? Uh, and we've, we made tremendous headway, you know, but we got a long ways to go. And I just hope that I, I, it's always hard to wonder if you have other people that are ride or die with you. Cause those people don't come along much in life. Yeah. Just finally, what's your approach to CPD or continued learning? I spend a shit ton of money, even if I don't have it. Um, I'm of the opinion that it is your responsibility to go into an, uh, an opportunity, no matter what you invested and take twice as much value from it. I think that we have a very entitled community that thinks that, you know, they should have the best of the best. They should have it nearly for free. They should get all the slides. They should get this. And I know that because I've seen it from this side now, you know, um, transparently, and I don't think people talk about this stuff much. It took us $30,000 to make any of our online courses with the exception of blind spot. Cause we use a different model valued, which is all about helping coaches get unstuck in their career and manage three parts in their 30, 35 grand bought in, which is for all intents and purposes, a sequel to conscious coaching 30 grand. And you have coaches that early on would complain that they couldn't get those courses that were shot with like 4k cameras took 12 to 18 months for like 50 bucks, (laughs) you know, or they wanted it for a hundred bucks. Now we should have priced it economically at like a thousand, you know, you have people like Tony Robbins and all that, that have shit courses that can, you know, they'll charge one to two grand. Hmm. Like we charge four, we, we should have charged at least $800 for those courses. We charge 397. That took a very long time to earn that money back. Um, and then uh, like, but then, you know, thankfully we, we got over that hump. And I, I, it's just like when something new hits the market, people got to make sense of it first. So bought in, boom, took off like wildfire. Valued, which people told us they wanted because they're like, I'm burnt out. I'm this, I'm that. It kind of had a tepid response. But then when COVID hit two years later, sold out like crazy. And that's what's sad is coaches are too reactive. So you have to spend money, guys, like nothing worthwhile in life 
comes free, quick, and easy. You can choose two of those, right? Like you can either have it free and quick, but it's not going to be easy. Or you can have it quick and free, but it's not going to be quick. You know, like you can't have all these things that you want and you've got to have a healthier attitude towards money. Most coaches don't even know they can get tax deductions for con ed. You know, that'll vary per country, but like you're going to give that money to your government anyway. You might as well start an LLC and, and use it as a tax deduction, depending on the country. The other thing is, is a lot of coaches won't do something unless it's CEU approved. Guys, that's a sucker's bet. The organizations that decide what gets CEUs and what don't, and this isn't out of bitterness, bought in 1.8 CEUs for the NSCA. Like that, that is so that they can keep your money. If I only bought what was CEU approved, I wouldn't know shit today other yeah. than, again, sets and reps. So you need to be competitive with yourself. If you said, bet, Brett, uh, over here in the, like, where are you based out of, Ben? UK? Uh, yeah, UK and in Manchester. Perfect. Manchester. Over here in Manchester, there's a, there's a seminar that is all about teaching people how to eat crayons. Come over here. Dude, I would bet you that I could go to that seminar and take at least three things from that that I can apply to my profession. But I think that people now just want everything spelled out for them. They don't want to think. So have a healthier attitude towards money. Do not just worry about CEUs and learn how to think. Quit going to workshops that teach you what to think. Learn how to think. And that will serve you a lifetime. Brilliant. You didn't ask me what I would do if I had to change careers and coaching wasn't an option in any way, shape, or form. I would be a sex therapist. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> what a way to wrap the podcast up. Because absolutely... there's two people, there's two things people think they're way better at than they are. Communication and sex. How's that? <laughs> Super. Is that the next business? Art coaching and then you know, we are going to do something next year that is about as mushy as it sounds. We're not going to make it mushy, um, but we, you know, we we've, we've done stuff that help coaches with leadership and finances and and burnout and and all that kind of stuff and imposter and speaking. We are going to do one on coaches and relationships, people that want to be better parents, better partners, just better people. And and again, none of our stuff is rah rah. All of our stuff is very real life. But we really want to help leaders learn how to have a better life. And, and mine's certainly not perfect. Me and my me and my wife get in arguments just like everybody else. Me and, you know, we're business partners. We stress out. But I really think that there needs to be a place uh, where coaches can go to have these conversations to learn how to bring. You'll never have balance in your life. But you can at least have more something. You know, and then we want we want a ability for coaches to get together and and talk about those things and share strategies. So yeah, sex might be a part of it. I think we're going to bring a sex therapist on the show and the on the podcast here soon. So buckle up for that one. Brilliant. That's absolutely quality. Brett, I've just got to say before I let you go that I'm I'm truly grateful for people like yourself that constantly drive different levels in this industry and, and open you. up your mind of things that can be achieved. So yeah, thank you very much for everything that you do. You continue to do in the levels that you do it at as well because for people like myself looking from the outside, it, it does it's inspirational. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And guys, all I ask is if I've given you any value, please go to artofcoaching.com. A portion of proceeds of anything that we sell and do every year goes to the Alzheimer's Association or Leukemia Lymphoma Foundation. We all know somebody that's been impacted by cancer or Alzheimer's. I'm not saying that we donate millions per year, but we actually do every single year and we have the receipts to prove it donate portions of our proceeds. So whether it's our online courses, our books, anything like that, we're, we're, we're immensely grateful. And we're a small business. It is entirely owned by my wife and I, 
Ben, thank you for the thoughtful discussion. Get your butt to one of our workshops. I'd love to meet you in person, spend some time around you. You're an absolute brilliant podcast host. I'll make sure and leave a review right after I'm done. Amazing. Thank you, Brett. Thank you. I'm very lucky, and I've said this a lot of times with the podcast and what we do with the networking events, I get to speak to a lot of coaches and a lot of practitioners. And the amount that, say, they take a lot from the podcast and they find it really beneficial is, is really great to hear. But I would love you to help me out and spread the message of the podcast to more coaches. So please, if you're listening and this is a real benefit to you, please give it a share and send it out directly to people as well that you think will really benefit from this one. This is obviously what we covered, the topics we covered in this podcast. They're not solely for sports scientists and strength and conditioning coaches, especially in this episode. So send it out to anyone. It might be a CEO of a company. It might be a teacher. They're all going to benefit from the things that Brett has talked about in this episode. So please share it. I really would appreciate it. Give it a share on social media, but also share it directly. Send it out to people on WhatsApp and tell people about it in person. Every little really does help. So I I hope you enjoyed this episode. I absolutely loved recording this one with Brett and I took loads of takeaways from it. Just the first thing for me, we talk about communication a lot, but I think Brett does a great job in terms of breaking it up into the intricacies and actually what we need to be doing to communicate better with our athletes and our players or just people that we talk about. And that's where where he spoke about the archetypes in his book. Um, I think that's where that really comes into play, like understanding what sort of people we are dealing with and then maybe adapting the the approach that you take when working with that or speaking with it or communicating with that person. And then the other key point that he made was that coaches don't stop and spend time on actually practicing coaching and communicating. And I think that's a really important point. And then the other thing that sort of ties onto that is question how much you actually spend in terms of time and also money on the interpersonal uh, skills in your practice and how that pairs up against actually what you're spending in terms of again time and money on the training or um, physiology side of what we actually do because we know that they're equally as important communication probably more important and does that balance up and if it doesn't maybe it's something to consider so Brilliant episode, I thought, like Brett was absolutely first class. I've heard him speak a lot of times on a lot of other podcasts, but really, really enjoyed chatting with him. So please give it a share. If you've not already left us an iTunes review and a Spotify rating, please go over and do that. I really would appreciate it. And also just a shout out as well to our sponsors, Rezzel, doing some great work in cognitive training, rehab, um, all around VR, virtual reality, Go and check those guys out as well over on social media at Rezzel, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. I'll be with you again next week with another great episode. Enjoy the rest of your week and I'll speak to you in episode 201.